Good morning. Um, our reading this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the side at the window, um, and you can take that home. It's our gift from us to you. Um, as we turn to the passage this morning, um, may we be reminded of God's goodness to us, um, how he speaks to us through his word, how we are able to learn so much um, of him and who he is through the words um, on these pages. So let us settle our hearts, let us quiet our minds, and let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. Colossians 3, 5 to 17. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we are here this morning. Thank you that we can sing of your goodness to us, that we can sing of your grace and how amazing it is that we get to know that grace. Father, I just pray that as we come to this passage this morning, that you will give us ears to hear, that you will help us to listen, that you will settle our hearts and calm our minds. Father, I just pray for Andrew as he comes to speak. I pray that you will give him the wisdom to walk through this passage. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Anna. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, we, we've been in this book of the Bible called Colossians, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. You might have heard of him. And he's writing, he's actually in prison at the time when he's writing this, and he's writing to a church uh, in uh, the ancient city of Colossae, um, which is, you know, Travis was reminding us last Sunday, that's a, a church that's very similar to ours. It's a small, young church, uh, only a few years into its life as a church, just like us. 
Um, and because we kind of just work our way through the books of the Bible like this, um, sometimes that means that there's, there's going to be things that, that we go say, yes, that's great, I really agree with that, when he says that there's to be unity between uh, race and class and all that kind of stuff, uh, we say yes, but then there's other things we will come across and we say, oh, I don't know about that because actually I like being angry or I like all these things I, that I, I know I shouldn't do. Um, and so I, I love that Hannah prayed for wisdom to walk through this passage. That's what I'm going to try and do this morning is walk through this. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us. Um, even if you're not a Christian, uh, this is for you as well, even though he's addressing the church. Um, and so we'll just walk our way through this passage pretty much verse by verse this morning. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I grew up in a church, a church-going family. Um, when I was a wee boy, my uh, mom and dad took us to church every Sunday. And back in those days, you had to wear your Sunday best going to church. You had, we had a, a, a set of clothes. And no, I'm not even joking. We went once a season, and you get a new church outfit, okay? A, your best clothes that, that only got worn on Sundays to church. So you put them on, you dress up in your finest gear, your wee tie and all, and you go off to church, and then you come home, and as soon as you got home, you're ripping them off, and they were put back in the wardrobe, ready for next Sunday again. Now, there is nothing wrong with wearing nice clothes to church or other places if you want, but the problem is that sometimes we do this with our attitudes and with our hearts and, and with our behaviors, don't we? We have Sunday best church clothes of our heart. Sometimes our Christianity is something that we just put on as we, maybe even as we just walk through those doors, and then we throw it off again as soon as we leave. And maybe we have a, a different set of personality clothes that we put on at home or at work or when we're socializing. But in our passage this morning, as Paul's writing to this church, he says that if we are in Jesus, that means if you're a Christian, it will mean that we dress like it, Okay? And, and, and that outfit will be consistent throughout our lives. And he's using clothes, the idea of putting off and putting on, as a metaphor for the new life that Christians now have in Jesus. Paul says, you, you have this new life in Christ, so dress like it, okay? He's saying, an, an inward change has taken place in you. Your old life is dead and gone, and now you have a new life. So if, I'm, if my house is on fire and I call the fire brigade and a guy turns up in flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt, I'm going to be like, no, mate, can you actually get the real fire brigade, please? The uniform says something about, the, 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 about what he is to do or, or she is to do. Our old life is dead and gone, and now you have a new life, so dress like it. Simply put, we can say this. Because we have new life in Christ, we must put off the old self and put on the new self. Because we have new life in Christ, we must put off the old self and put on the new self. Last week, last Sunday, Travis walked through verses 1 to 4 of um, chapter 3 here. And Paul shows us in these verses uh, that in becoming a Christian, everything about us changes. We have a, a new nature. In fact, uh, Paul says we have been raised with Christ. In verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. You have been raised with Christ. Now that we word with, in the original language, if you're a bit of a nerd like me, that's a wee word, S-Y-N in English letters, sin. That's, that's the, not sin, S-I-N, but sin as in syncope or sync up. Like when you sync your laptop to your phone, what happens? The two become one in a sense. 
Everything that's on your phone is, is now synced with your laptop and vice versa. And so we have, in a way, been synced up with Jesus. We have been raised with him. Everything that, that is his is now ours, including his resurrection. We have been raised to a new life. And so, of course, we're going to have new priorities. We're going to have new actions. We're going to have new attitudes. And Paul is saying, listen, you have this new life in Christ. You've been synced up with Christ. So put off the old self, everything that was the way you used to be, and put on this new self. Uh, Haley's nanny, Shirley, uh, uh, Haley tells me this, that whenever they were kids and, and she was telling them to get changed, she would say, get off you and get on you, right? So this is a get off you and a get on you uh, passage. We're getting off the old self and we're getting on you the new self. And in verses 5 to 11, if you have your Bible open in front of you, we see that we ha- what we have to put off. And in verses 12 to 17, we see what we have to put on. So firstly then, Paul says, put off the old self. Put off the old self. Very simply, Paul is saying that because we have this new life in Jesus, we must put off everything that is inconsistent with Christ. And we can break this down into three parts. Desires, deeds, and divisions. Okay? So I was saying to, uh, I was saying to someone earlier, I've got only two points this morning, but the first point has three subpoints, and the second point has four subpoints. So really, uh, you get, you know, you're getting a lot of value for money this morning. Um, Firstly, we must put off sinful desires. We see this in in verses 5 to 7. Paul says, put to death. We'll come back to that in a second because that's quite an extreme phrase. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you. Now, this is for Christians. And he, this is violent and extreme language, right? Put to death. This is not just taking off your, your Sunday church clothes and you get home and, and, and hanging them up in the wardrobe. This is taking them off and taking them outside and burning them. We're not just to keep them there in case we want to slip back into them someday. We're to get rid of them so that we can never pick them up and try them on again. And the problem is that sometimes we, we just try to manage those old attitudes, the sin in our lives, don't we? We like the option of, of dabbling in it every now and again. Maybe it'll just make us feel good. We like, the, the, we like the old clothes to be hanging there in the wardrobe, just in case. We slip back into things. We slip back into our old nature. We slip back into being un, uh, wrongfully angry because we know that we're in the right I can't be angry here because I'm right and you're wrong. Or maybe we're feeling lonely and unfulfilled and so maybe we, 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 look, at, we look at porn just one time because we know it'll make us feel good in that moment and sure it's not doing anyone any harm. But we're called not just to manage our sin but to kill it. We don't entertain it. We don't, we don't give it air to breathe or room to grow. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Alien from the 80s. Maybe the 70s even, I'm not sure. Uh, the thing, this little alien is tiny and, and you could just kill it easily. But they hesitate and it, before long it grows in this huge monster that starts killing everybody. So it is with sin. John Owen, who was a, a, a Puritan preacher uh, from the 17th century, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Wow. 
Because sin is inconsistent with our new life in Jesus. And, and we have to realize that our old way of life is dead. You know when Paul writes, put to death, another way of saying that, another way of phrasing that is, is saying, reckon it as dead, count it as dead. That's dead and gone. And so he says, put to death your desires, those old desires. And Paul starts with desires because our desires shape our actions, right? And we start this process not by trying to curb or curtail our behavior. I'm going to try really hard to be not angry or I'm going to try really hard to do whatever. No, he says, start with your desires. Address what's in your heart. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Sexual immorality, this is the word, actually, we're getting a few Greek lessons this morning. This is the word pornea, where you can imagine we get the word pornography from. And it's kind of like in the Bible, a catch-all catch uh, term for, for any sexual desire or activity that is outside of, of God's intention, God's good design for sexual desire. That is, that is uh, only to belong within marriage, right? And so if we're single... Paul's saying, if you're a Christian and you're single, if you're in Jesus and you're single, then, then we don't fantasize or lust after other people. And he's saying, if you're a Christian and you're married, then you don't lust after people you're not married to. Fellas, this seems like a good opportunity to ask you, how do you look at the women in your life that you're not married to? Because if you are in Christ, those things are dead to you. Sexual immorality, impurity. He says passions. That, 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 that word just means lust, Right? Evil desires. This is a way, of, in, in, a way of talking about sexual desires. These things are dead to us because we have been raised to Christ. And, and by the way, Paul is not saying that sexual desire is bad. This is God's good gift for us. But just that we must uh, do those things in the right way. And not only was this sexual ethic radical in Paul's time, but it's radical in our time too. And it was radical in Paul's time. In the first century, it was do whatever you want, especially men, and treat everyone as badly as you want to. Go after whatever you want to. So this was a radical message. But, but, but actually, I think in our world too, in our, in our context, the message of the world is to go after and pursue and sleep with whatever consult, consult, consulting, no, consenting adult will have you. That's what the world tells us to do. It's all good. It's only sex. It's only desires. Gratification is good. Do what makes you feel good. As long as you're not breaking the law, sure, then that's okay. But Paul says, no, no, no. You are dead to these things. These things are dead to you. And these things are dangerous. How many times have we seen people living with the consequences of, of sinful desires not being put to death? Marriage is abandoned because inappropriate desires allowed room to grow. Or lives shipwrecked because porn is allowed to, to grow from a temptation into an addiction. No wonder Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. That's how serious this is. And Paul, standing in the realm of desires, moves on to covetousness. And there's a link here because maybe in the old sense he's referring to in the Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife. But it's also every kind of covetousness. Covetousness is an old word and it just means the desire to have what you don't have. Or the desire to have what other people have that you don't have. It's looking at other people and their lives and saying, I want what they have. 
I want what they have because I'm unfulfilled. This is so hard in the age we live in, isn't it? I can't open Instagram, honestly, uh, without being bombarded with things. I think, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. If only my body looked that way, or if only I had that job, or, or, or those clothes, or that house, or whatever it is, then I'd be happy. Me and Haley are always joking about uh, how much better our lives would be if we had a utility room. Right, pretty sad, right? Pretty sad. Look at married people are like, oh yeah, utility room. That's the good stuff. Like, pretty sad, and it's funny, but in fact, the desire to have what we don't have is sometimes so subtle that it even appears to be good. I mean, sure, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting a, 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 you know, a laundry room. At least all that mess wouldn't be in our kitchen anymore. <laughs> or we just close the door and forget about it. But we need to be careful in these things. Because if we're not, these things we covet and desire can become idols in our lives, right? This is why Paul says, covetousness, which is idolatry. You know why he says that? He says that because when we look at our lives... And everybody does it, no matter how wealthy or well-off or good-looking or whatever you are, everybody does this. Whenever we look at things in our, we look at our lives and think, this thing is lacking or that thing is lacking, then we're fundamentally not trusting that God has provided all that we need. And as soon as we're not trusting God, that's idolatry. And what is the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. It's so often the God of, of having or desiring is, it, it takes precedent in our lives, Right? And so we need to ask ourselves, if we are Christians, we need to ask ourselves, what are the gods in our lives that we need to put to death? What are the things we need to get rid of? We have a new life in Jesus, and so we need to put to death these desires. Secondly then, as we put off the old self, we must also then put off sinful deeds. Not just our desires, but our deeds, our actions. And we see this in verses 8 to 10. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, Paul has moved from desires of the heart into the things we actually do because that's how we operate, isn't it? You have the desires and then you do. And in particular, Paul is addressing the kinds of, of deeds, the kind of actions that will disrupt unity in the church, in this family, in this community. Things that if we don't put them away can shipwreck marriages, friendships, and, and even entire churches. And Paul is saying, because we have a new life in Jesus, be careful how we treat each other. Anger. Put away anger. Now, this is an attitude of anger that kind of seeps out of a person. This isn't being... I mean, we can look at atrocities happening in the world and we can be righteously angry about those things. We can look at violent loss of life and say, no, that makes me angry. But Paul is addressing the kind of, you know the kind of person, you just know they're an angry person. And it just kind of bubbles out, it seeps out. They have this undercurrent of anger just bubbling under the surface. That's the, that's the way I was before Jesus saved me. I was an angry person. Maybe some of you just think I still am. Anger was often my first response. It was the thing that came out in the way I said, said things and the things I said. But in Jesus, we will put anger to death. Wrath is related to anger, but it's more like rage. It's not so much the ongoing seeping out of anger. It's that outburst of anger, that outburst of rage. And we will put that away because it's inconsistent with our new life in Jesus. Malice. Does anyone think of themselves as malicious? 
I don't like to think of myself as malicious, but let me put it this way. Do you ever make passive-aggressive comments? Do, do you ever think, I wish that person would get out of my life? That's me driving the car. Get out of my life. That's malice. I need to put that away. That person's no good. My brother or sister in the church, they're no good. Put it away. Slander and obscene talk, these two go together because they are both to do with how we speak about others. Slander is saying untrue and negative things about somebody else. And obscene talk, he isn't talking about the use of bad language. He's talking about speaking harmful and malicious things about others. Church, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been raised to new life and we need to put these things away. There should be no place for those in our lives. I've said this before and I, and I want to keep emphasizing this, there is nothing that will destroy a church quicker than slander and gossip. I've seen churches literally split in two because of that. The people around you are your eternal brothers and sisters. And so if you have that temptation to say something about someone else, maybe just stop for a second and ask yourself, is this true? Is it positive? And is it necessary? And if the answer to all three of those is yes, then go ahead and say it. If not, then don't say it. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Then in verse 9, of course, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, he's saying, have a consistency and an integrity in the words that we say to one another. Just be honest with one another. We don't like to think that we lie, do we? But where are the inconsistencies in our speech? When our brothers or sister asks us how we're doing, are we honest? Do we maybe downplay the things we're struggling with? Or when someone asks us to do something that we don't want to do, do we, do we make up an excuse? Or can we just be honest with them? We have been synced up with Jesus. We have been raised with Jesus. And in him there is no lying. And so we will put lying away. And, and, and notice what he says at the end of verse 9, the end of verse 10. He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the, in knowledge after the image of its creator. We, we are raised to walk in new life with Christ, and so our old self itself is dead. This is our present reality. He's not try, trying to give us a bunch of stuff to do. He's saying, this is who you are. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. This is who we are. So let's not wear the clothes of the old life anymore. Now imagine somebody is in jail for a horrific crime and then they are released from jail. So their sentence is done. They paid for it. But they still walk around wearing the prison uniform. Wouldn't that be kind of strange? In fact, the image, is, is, the image is, is kind of more graphic than that. The image is, imagine someone being raised from the dead, but they still wear the grave clothes. Put off the old self, the sinful desires and, 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 and deeds, and put on the new self, the life in Christ. A friend of mine put it this way. He said, um, we are to put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. Kind of cheesy, but I like it because you can remember it. Put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. Thirdly, as we put off the old self, we are to put off sinful division. Desires, deeds, division. Sinful desires lead to sinful actions, which leads to division. 
Look at verse 11. Here, as in in the church, in the people of Jesus, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, he's not saying that these things don't exist. He's not saying that that we give up our ethnicity or our, um, uh, you know, our um, uh, nationalities or anything like that when we come to Jesus. But he is saying that unity in diversity is part of God's good design for his church. God is making himself a, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Sometimes I think about our church and I think of like, you know, all the different kinds of people we have, personalities and interests and all that kind of stuff. And there's no way that in any other walk of life we would be friends, never mind family. But yet in the church, it's not that those differences are gone, but division because of difference is gone. Because Jesus breaks down the barriers that sin puts up. There was never meant to be division between races. Never meant to be division between the sexes. Never meant to be division between ethnicities. Notice what he says, Greek and Jew. This is a racial barrier that is broken down by Jesus. The race barrier is broken down. Circumcised and uncircumcised. This is an ethnic barrier to talk about the Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Barbarian and Scythian. This is a cultural barrier that is broken down because the barbarians, they were non Greek speakers, they were seen as a wee bit uncouth. And the Scythians, they were even more uncouth. They were kind of like the cultures, right? They were the cultures of the world. They're like, these guys, they don't, I mean, they don't even know what a flat white is. Come on. Slave and free. This is a class barrier. A class barrier that is broken down. Now, here's what I love. Let me just camp out here for a second because I think this is really amazing. Think about this in the context of Colossae, the ancient church, a city in the ancient Roman world. You could have a slave who in society's eyes was subhuman, worthless. And yet when they come to the church, in the church, that person could be an elder in the church. And on the other side, you could have a rich, slave-owning, wealthy Roman citizen who would come and submit to that person's leadership. This is the unity of the church that those class and racial and societal barriers are smashed down. There's a historian from uh, the the first century called Josephus, and he was a Jew, Um, but after the, this is really boring, you don't need to know this. Anyway, he was a historian after the fall of Rome in AD 70, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, he he wrote a lot of history. He started reporting to the Romans what was going on. And, and, And the Romans were interrogating Christians and, and at this point, he records, they were interrogating, the governor's interrogating two female Christian slaves. So these, these, are the, these are the least of the least in the world's eyes. They are female and they are slaves. In, that, in those days, that was the worst of the worst. And they refuse to believe that these women are telling the truth because they are deacons in the church. Saying, you know, I know that we're both slaves and I know we're women, but, but we're deacons in the church. And they're like, we don't believe you because there is no way, there is no way that women or slaves could be seen as equal, never mind leaders in the church. But Jesus smashes down the barriers of human difference. You see, division is to be put away because Christ is all and Christ is in all. We are equal because Christ is in all. So regardless of race and culture and ethnicity and class, 
We are all equal in Jesus. So there will be no division between nationalists and unionists, between hipsters and spides, between middle class or working class, between Irish or British, or between white and non-white, all these things. In the church, these things are gone. And a beautiful thing about the church is that the, the, the oneness we have does not have to equal sameness. Difference is not gone in Christ, but in Christ, division because of difference is gone, you see? So Paul says, put off the old self. Put off everything that is inconsistent with Christ. Christ is all. Christ is in all. So we're not going to have sinful desires. We're going to take control of those things. We're going to put them to death. We're not going to practice sinful deeds because we have been raised with Christ. We're not, we're not going to have sinful division because Christ is all and Christ is in all. So those things are dead to us now. And we have been raised with Christ. So that's the, that's the negative side. That's the putting off. Those are the clothes we have taken off, but now we need to go and get dressed again, okay? Because sometimes Christians are known more for what we don't do rather than what we do. <laughs> Christians, oh, Christian, oh, you're the person who doesn't do this, doesn't do this, doesn't do this. But the Christian life is not just reactive, it is proactive. And so because of our new life in Jesus, we must put on the new self. We must put on the new self. And to put on the new self, Paul says, put on the new self is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Notice in verse 4, he says, Christ who is your life. Christ who is your life. Remember, remember Danny and Ted Lasso, the South American one? He's like, football is life. You know that guy? Well, well for us, Christ is life. We're to be like that kid who's always wearing a football kit, no matter where they go or what they're doing. You know, there's just kids that age, like they're, some of them are just always wearing a football kit. Birthday party, football kit. Wedding, football kit. School, football kit. Whatever it is. Like, I mean, proper shirt, shorts, and socks. So it is for us. Our old life is dead. Our new life is in Christ. So we will, no matter where we're going or what we're doing, we will be wearing everything that is consistent with the Lord Jesus. Firstly, we will be clothed in the character of Christ. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And there's, I want us to note here that there's nothing pretentious about what, God is, or about what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, try and do these things or do these things and you'll become better. What he is saying is, is let how you live match up with who you are. So you see, he says, you are God's chosen ones, holy, beloved. We are chosen by God. Ephesians 1 tells us we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's his grace. And let us in that song, grace alone. We are holy, not that we are perfect in our behavior at all. None of us are. But, but we are declared holy by God because we are in Jesus. And we are beloved. Jesus is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And because we are in Jesus, we are beloved by God. This is who we are. If, if you're a Christian, this is who you are. 
You're chosen, you're holy, you're beloved. And so, you will live like it. It's not like, it's not like behaving like a, a dad makes me a dad. No, I behave like a dad, hopefully, because I am a dad, right? And so, we are chosen, holy, and beloved, and so we will behave like it. We will be clothed in the character of Christ. So, we will have, what does he say? We will have compassionate hearts. This is a deep concern for others. Not, not being self-absorbed or putting our needs first, but, but deeply concerned for the welfare of others. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. Our hearts are for the brokenhearted because that is the heart of Christ. We will put on kindness likewise. This is a goodness and a gentleness. It's, being kind is, is so important because I think it's, it's rarely found in the world. The world tells us to perform and achieve and strive at the expense of others. But in Jesus, our priority will not be our performance, but displaying kindness towards others because this is the character of Christ. Every day when I drop my kids off at school, I say, what are daddy's rules for school? And they say, be kind, work hard, and have fun. Those are kind of my priorities in life. <laughs> um, why are we to be kind? And they say, because Jesus was kind to us. How was Jesus kind to us? He gave his life for us. We will be clothed in humility and meekness, Paul goes on. Virtues that, that everybody looks for in other people, don't they? Like when we're seeing politicians or public figures or whatever it may be, we want them to display humility and meekness. But yeah, it's so often to, to hard to find in ourselves, isn't it? C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. What a way that would be to live in a world that teaches us that we are all individually the center of our own universe. We are, all, we are all our own gods. And we can't let anyone tell us who we are or what to do. Imagine if we thought of ourselves less. In the example of Jesus, we are to be meek. Meekness isn't weakness. It's strength under control. See, Jesus had all power and authority, and yet he lived a life of humility and meekness, not fighting for his own rights, but laying down his life for others. Paul goes on, putting on this new self will mean that we will, will put on patience. Now, that's not in the sense of, of waiting for something. It's being patient with others, isn't it? As we often get frustrated in the church with our brothers and sisters, maybe because of things they do or say, but in Christ, we will be patient with one another, allowing God to do the work in them that he needs to do in them. And listen, there is not one of us, regardless of how mature we may be or not, not one of us doesn't need patience from our brothers and sisters. And this means that we need to be patient too. This is why Paul says that we are to bear with one another. <laughs> Verse 13, bearing with one another. I love how real Paul is here because what he's really saying this is a young church and what he's saying is like listen you need to put up with each other I love there's just a realness up. put up with them he's literally saying put up with them you see the church is entirely made up of sinful people all of us and so we need our brothers and sisters to bear with us and we need to bear with them and that means crucially that we will forgive one another forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. If you have a complaint against someone, whether you are right or wrong, 
That's not your first concern. Your first concern is to move towards them in forgiveness. Because of our new life in Jesus, we don't seek to get justice for ourselves. We don't fight our corner or, or, or become defensive. We forgive. See, we can't just enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus for ourselves and then not extend that to others. That's a huge inconsistency. As the Lord has forgiven you, Paul says, so you must also forgive. This means that in the, in the church, there is no excuse for unforgiveness, none whatsoever. You can't continue in unforgiveness if someone has wronged you. Remember how you've been forgiven and then forgive others, and it's not optional. And all these things are about how we relate to one another in the church. And here's what I want to focus on for a second. None of these things are spectacular, are they? You know, he's not, he's not saying go and give the most tithes and offerings or, or, or go and start the best charities. Or, do, he, he, this is not showy. It's simple every day, wearing the character of Christ as we relate with one another. And I love that. Small things towards those around us and our homes and our friendships and our church. This is the life that glorifies God. God is far more concerned with your character than he is with your success. And so these are the things that we will embody as we clothe ourselves in the character of Christ. And what binds it all together? Verse 14, above all, above all, put on love. So, so love is kind of like the overcoat that covers the whole outfit. We are to be bound together in love. And that means that we don't just run away when things get tough or somebody annoys us or, or we disagree with something or somebody offends us. It's, it's like those... Um, you know those inflatable bungee runs? Bear with me. I know you're like, where are you going? You know the bungee runs? You're tied on the bungee cord and you run as far as you can and then it springs you back. That's like love. Love is the bungee cord that pulls us back together and reminds us, oh no, we can't run away because I have to forgive them when I'm offended. It reminds us to be patient when we disagree or to be humble and meek with each other's points of view. This is the character of Christ. I wonder, are in our interactions with one another, are these things in the forefront of our minds? Forgiveness, meekness, humility, love? Are we wearing the character of Christ or are we still every now and again just picking up the old clothes and putting them back on again? Next, as we put on the new self, we will be ruled by the peace of Christ. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now, peace speaks of two things here. It speaks of the wholeness, the shalom. It's a, it's a calmness in our hearts, even in the face of, of adversity that comes through being in Jesus. But also in the context here of the church, uh, speaks to resolution of conflict. So the, the word rule in the original language, it, it kind of means to be the umpire. It's related to this word umpire. So like in a tennis match, the umpire, who sits up in his big chair, he has the final say on if the ball is in or out, or whatever it may be. I don't really watch tennis, but I think that's what they do. It's not, so, so peace is to be the umpire. It will have the final decision in our, our conflicts as Christians. Not being right or wrong, but peace. The goal of my conflict is no longer to, 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 to prove my rightness, but it's to have peace with my brothers and sisters. And the amazing thing is that when we live this way, we get a wee taster of the kingdom of heaven here and now, in our lives, in our church. 
the kingdom that is coming that we're, we're going to think about in a few weeks, Advent. Yes, Christmas is coming. Um, where, where the Prince of Peace will rule and of his government there will be no end. And we get to experience that and glimpse that here and now when the rule of Christ, the, the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. We are one body. Christ is all. Christ is in all. And so we walk in his peace. Thirdly then, as we put on the new self, we will be filled with the word of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the peace of Christ rules and the word of Christ dwells. This is why uh, we do what we do here. We just take passage of the Bible and we just work our way through them because this is the word of Christ and, and the word of Christ is, Christ is to dwell in us richly. To dwell in us. That means not just be a frequent visitor or not just be a house guest, right? It's not just a visitor that gets the good tiles and never gets to see in through your closed bedroom door where all the mess is. This is a, a permanent resident that richly or abundantly or excessively fills your entire house. We are to be saturated with the word of God. So we will read it, we will learn it, we will recite it, and we will use it to teach and admonish one another. Admonish one another. So we're going to use the Bible to counsel and correct and advise one another. I don't know how to think about this situation. Can you help me? Yeah, let's see what the Bible says. That's what this means. And I love this because one of the ways that the word dwells in us as the church, Paul says, is through singing. And not just singing any songs, but songs that are theologically rich and full of the word of Christ. Part of our singing is so that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. This is amazing. And we have a great team of worship leaders here and they do a great job of helping think through what words should we sing and what should we not sing. And we might not have the biggest repertoire of songs, but that's because we want to make sure that the songs we sing are the word of Christ. Now, a little note on this. I know that some of us are more naturally inclined to sing than others. But just like the forgiveness, this is not optional. This is a command. And maybe you don't like singing, or maybe you don't think you're very good at it, or maybe you get self-conscious, or maybe you just think it's not very cool or whatever. Well, here's what I'd say to those things. It doesn't matter because it's not about you. It's not about you. We are commanded to sing by God to one another. Isn't this interesting? We think we're all standing here looking up to sing to God. In a sense, we are. But here in this context within the church, we are singing spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. In other words, the church needs you to sing to each other. As we sing to God, we are ministering to one another. This is part of our ministry, all of us, to the church. And if you're just standing there mumbling or you're not singing or whatever it may be, you're denying your brothers and sisters, the word of God dwelling richly in you. I love how in the early church, in the first century, enthusiasm for singing was a mark of maturity in the church. It was weird back then, it's still weird, but I guess it was even more weird back then. The early church were characterized by this enthusiasm for singing. But we are all encouraged by the singing together. Because it's an act of unity in Christ. It's an act of defiance to the devil. 
It's, it's letting the word of Christ dwell on us richly. Finally then, to put on the new self means that we will do everything in the name of Christ. Everything in the name of Christ. Verse 17. Let's see, let's see how he finishes this thing. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the summary of all the putting off and putting on. It is this, to honor the Lord Jesus in everything you say and do. Honor the Lord Jesus in everything you say and do. And this passage is, is one of those passages uh, that as Christians we can come back to time and time again because uh, we know that we are in Jesus, we know that we are Christians, all that kind of stuff. This is a passage that says, I'm going to show you what this looks like. And here's the summary of it. Honor the Lord Jesus in everything you say and do. So if you are unsure about how you are behaving or what to do in any situation, just ask yourself this question. Am I honoring the Lord Jesus? Is the way I am behaving consistent with my new life in Christ? You see, there's no separation between your church life and your work life or your church life and your home life or your church life and your friend's life. I really, really dislike the term Christian life as if there was some separation between our Christian life and our secular life or whatever it may be. Because for us as Christians, there is only one life and our life is Christ. Christ who is your life. Christ is all and is in all. We are to be the same at home and at church. And I openly ask you, if you guys see inconsistencies in the way I am here on a Sunday and the way you see me with my family or with my friends, then you should pull me up on that. And you should do that for one another. We don't just put on our Sunday best and, and come to the gathering and be kind and humble and forgiven and then take these things off again and hang them up until next week. No. We are to wear the new self consistently and constantly. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Not just some things, or, or not just the things you feel like, but do everything in the name of Jesus. That means if you're a friend, be a friend in the name of Jesus. If you're a spouse, conduct your marriage in the name of Jesus. Our thoughts and desires are to be in line with the name of Christ. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, listen, here's what I want to finish with. I want you to be encouraged. If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to be encouraged because you can do this. Not because you are some kind of super good person or like really holy or whatever, but because you have been raised with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, it is Christ who lives in you. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. For us who are in Christ, this means that these things, the putting off and the putting on and the honoring Christ and everything is not an impossible task. Verse 3, you have died. Verse 4, Christ is your life. Verse 8, but now. Verse 9, you have put off. Verse 10, you have put on. Verse 12, you are chosen, holy and beloved. You see, the things we are commanded to do in this passage are not impossible goals. It's not some way of trying to prove that we're good people or morally right or holy or even trying to earn our salvation. These are not things that we have to do in order to become better. These are things that are now our reality. These things are our nature. 
These are things we do because of who we are. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb, our old life was crucified and buried with him. And when he rose again, we were raised in new life with him. That's what it means to be synced with him. His death and resurrection becomes our death and resurrection. And so as we as Christians consider these things, it's not really a question of what should I do? It's a question of who am I? I think I've said this before, but whenever I was a teenager going out, my my dad would say, "Um, remember whose you are. He didn't say remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Maybe he meant that in a way of like you're part of this family, but he also meant it in terms of remember who you belong to. So this is not a go and do sermon. This is a go and be sermon. If you are trusting in Jesus, then you are chosen by God. You are holy. You're declared holy. You are beloved by God. And because Jesus has died and rose again and ascended to heaven, and he has given us his spirit to dwell in us, we can now live this life because it's who we are. And if you're not a Christian, if this is all new to you, if this is all you know, a surprise to you or confusing to you, then you can have this new life. The things you struggle with, the guilt you carry around, the pain you carry around, then the offer of new life is, is for you as well by simply trusting that Jesus died for you too. I encourage you to do that today. So as we put off the old and put on the new, all we are doing as Christians is living our new nature in Christ. Because why? Christ is all Christ is in all. To him be the glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that it's good and true. It's living and active. You're speaking to us, your people, again this morning. Uh, Father, we want to pray for this word that we've received, that it would be good and nourished into our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would remove the, the weight of maybe legalism that would tell us that we have to do all these things in order to be loved and chosen by you. And instead, you'd fill us with your grace again, knowing that because of Jesus and only because of him, we are chosen and holy and beloved. Lord Jesus, we just all say to you now that you are all and in all. Help us to live in peace and forgiveness and humility and meekness. Help us to be clothed in the character of Christ, to to be ruled by your peace. Help your word to dwell richly among us, Lord. Only you have the words of eternal life, and without you we are lost in every sense of the word. Father, I pray that as a church, as individuals, and and even people from different contexts this morning, Lord, we pray that that in everything we do, we would honor the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to not be inconsistent this week as we go about our lives. Help us to be consistently wearing the clothes of Jesus, not just the Sunday best, but the everyday best. Father, we pray these things now as we come to your table again. We thank you for your body given for us, for your blood spilled for us, Lord. And as we, your family, take this meal and remember your death and proclaim your death, Father, we pray that you would meet with us in a way that we know that you don't do in any other time. Lord, we come to the table with thanksgiving, come in forgiveness, or we come in unity. We praise things for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Um, as we-